Welcome to CF Digital, the show that asks the tough questions about child custody, co-parenting, and child attachment. Parent and family court practitioners from around the world and across many disciplines will find these programs valuable. Dr. Mark Roseman, founder of CF Digital and publisher of Contemporary Family Magazine states, as with our magazine Contemporary Family, CF Digital focuses on the global issues of child custody, child development, and family policy. Our global guests and panelists are the pioneers, practitioners, and researchers who will share their many unique perspectives on the issues of interventions, treatment, and law. Whether you are a therapist, attorney, legislator, or parent, you will find a fountain of information to help with your chosen discipline here at CF Digital. Please share and write us your thoughts on the program. Welcome back to CF Digital, uh, the show that answers all these questions that people have pertaining to family court from different aspects, from journalism, from legal, from social science. Tonight we have Joseph Seldner, who is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated journalist and has been in the film industry for 35 years. Mr. Seldner, welcome back to the, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. Let's start off with you giving us a little bit of the background of of your experience and how you got involved in certain things in family court? Well, um, I was in a, um, a marriage in, uh, we got married in Colorado and moved back to Connecticut when I was in business school. And then we moved out to California and the marriage was, um, you know, not going great, but I think sort of typical of marriages that, that uh, begin to fall apart. And rather than filing for divorce the way um, a typical person might do, my ex-wife <clears throat> began the process by filing a claim with the police that I had uh, abused my son, which was not true. It was first of many untrue claims that she made, and it was investigated and dismissed by the court. She then continued a progression of upping the ante for quite some time. It was a six-year custody battle. Six years, three states, two trials, um, and she accused me of abusing her, uh, essentially kidnapped my daughter for a year, took her to Nebraska, tried to change, called her by a different last name, <clears throat> neglected my son, completely abandoned my son, um, and ultimately, through my daughter, leveled a um, horrendous false charge that um, I think in many ways, although at the time did not feel like a good thing at all, I think turned things around, but leveled the false charge about me uh, molesting my daughter. And the, the system began to investigate that very carefully and dismissed it. And we had two trials and at the, uh, at the second, my, my, my ex-wife did not show up at the first trial, even though she knew that she had to. Um, she showed up for the second trial, and when the judge awarded me sole custody of both children again, he said that, uh, he said a couple of things. He said that my house is the only house where both children were welcome, and he said that my daughter's, I, I had not done anything to create my daughter's hatred of me, and that if the situation were allowed to continue, my daughter would be doomed. That was his word. So he gave me sole custody of my kids. They were 11 and eight at the time. They're now 39 and 36. But it was uh, an extraordinarily difficult, unpleasant situation. The, the judge in Ventura County called it the worst custody case he had ever seen. So 
I have to, I have to believe him. And As what a, year was that, Joe? Well, it started in 1994 <clears throat> um, or 93. I got custody in 1995. But even after I got custody, she continued to you know, try to get uh, custody ruling overturned, try to get jurisdiction changed, and all those attempts failed. And um, uh, then in uh, 2001, she died. So um, I was a single parent. I've been a single parent for, you know, going on 30 years now. Well, let me ask you this, because this this is a thing as a journalist of 35 years experience or anything. How do you place the current media outlook on these sort of cases like yours, uh, only showing one side of the case or pertaining to mental health issues and stuff like that? Well, you know, I don't I don't see maybe I'm doing this deliberately. I don't see a lot of coverage of these kind of cases. Um I, I know that there's been a debate. I, I understand, please correct me if I'm wrong, <clears throat> that you're not allowed to say parental alienation syndrome anymore, which is unfortunate because <clears throat> everything that uh, Richard Gardner described is what my ex-wife engaged in. So now you're just supposed to call it parental alienation. And I, I know that there was a, a lengthy debate in the media over the validity of parental alienation, but I can assure you it is a real thing um, and I think needs more attention um, by the media. And, one, and once the media decides not to call it parental alienation syndrome, it kind of loses some of its impact on, on the public and also loses its impact on cases that are covered. So. I would just say more than anything else, these cases are not covered nearly as much as they ought to be. So, and uh, what was it? a couple of weeks ago, we had an episode that we did our coffee talk on. Uh, a lot of people have gotten on the TikTok and you see videos, not media, but videos of parents being barged in on kids taken and all this stuff. But the media, news media never jumps on these stories. Why do you think that is? Well, Clint, that's an excellent question. Um, I don't know if there's too much other <clears throat> nonsense going on that they don't <clears throat> feel that it merits the attention that, that we, we believe it should get. There is a lot other, of other things going on. Um, I don't know if they feel that somehow it's an intrusion on families that they don't think is uh, appropriate to intrude on. But I do, I definitely, so I, those are my two best guesses. There's a lot of other noise in the background that gets more attention and there might be an element of, of personal um, trespass that the media don't feel comfortable with. And they, it's also difficult to, you know, to, to, to get all sides of the story immediately or even on a somewhat ongoing basis. So I think there probably is a feeling in the media that Look, if we get involved in this, we're, we have to, in, in the interest of fairness, we really have to cover it for the long haul, and they don't have the resources or the interest to do that. Okay, David, Julie, you have any questions? That, uh... You know, I, I do. I, I would like to, you know, when um, Joe talked about it being, you said, 1994 that this Correct. was going on, we're, we're almost at the 30-year marker here. Yep. Okay. Do you see... Um, anything within the last 30 years um, in terms of public policy changes 
in terms of anything that uh, people were doing on the outside to advocate and promote um, at that time compared to the advocacy that's going on now with different groups around the country? Do you think that there was a consistent level of advocacy all these years, or you think it's not kind of ebbed and flowed? And what would you suggest um, in policy reform now um, in order to assist people who were in the unfortunate situation that you found yourself in? Well, it's a good question. I, I think uh, certainly when I was going through it in the 1990s, um, there was <clears throat> parental alienation was not even a concept people were familiar with, whether it was a syndrome or not. I remember the judge in my case had just come back from a <clears throat> conference on parental alienation, which was fortunate for me because he was aware of it. But there was not <clears throat> a general awareness of, of these issues. Um, and I think that the level of awareness was such that people said, OK, maybe this happens, maybe it doesn't. Um, I think I think one thing I would recommend that I've been recommending for 30 years is if it can be demonstrated that one parent has made a false allegation that needs to be taken seriously as a criminal matter. And um, people who make false allegations, I'm, I'm, I'm currently at, at Stanford University and there was somebody who made a false allegation here of sexual assault, and that person is being prosecuted. Um, I think one way you can you can uh, mitigate the effects of, of what I went through is to demonstrate that when somebody has made a false allegation that they're to be held accountable. I think that that would have a significant impact on on the severity of these kind of cases. I think what you guys are doing is is great. I think that there needs to be more of a lobbying effort, but I don't, Julie and I talked about this a little bit <clears throat> and I admire what, what David and Julie and other groups are doing. Um, and I give them a lot of credit and support for lobbying and trying to get legislative changes. Um, I'm a big believer that um, media coverage is the best way to get legislatures to pay attention to these things. It's, it's not the reverse. It's not that legislatures are going to act on their own because they think that there's some public good to be served. Um, they may, but I think it's unlikely. I think that the, the best way to get uh, policy changes is to get media coverage, not just of the individual stories, although I think that's important, but of the, of the fact that families are being torn apart and the kids are suffering significantly um, and write about it and, and have it on social media and have it on, on various media outlets, <clears throat> and then bring that to the attention of the people who are writing the laws and say, see, here's what's going on. I think, the, and, and maybe you're doing that. I, 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 I may stand corrected on that. But I think to try to get legislature, legislators to act <clears throat> um, proactively is an uphill battle um, that, uh, it's worth fighting, but it's a very tough fight to have. So a question that I have for you, and it's a question that I like to ask a lot of the people that come into our community, and it's why should anybody else care about your nasty divorce, your custody battle? Why is it important that our legislators, the stakeholders, 
in a family court system or educators or anybody else? Why should anybody care? Well, uh, another good question. I think first my reaction is because this is a form of child abuse. It's it's a somewhat under the radar form, but it's emotional abuse that is severe and has long lasting consequences. So if you care about other abuse that is being uh, um, visited upon children, and, and there is a lot of media coverage of other abuse being visited upon children, this is another form of emotional child abuse that needs attention. And uh, I mean, for, for whatever reason, ever since I was a little kid, I've always had a, a soft spot in my heart towards children who were <clears throat> in trouble. And I think that there's a general interest in the population to help children who are in trouble. So the answer to the question of why should people, I don't, it doesn't matter to me if anybody cares about my case, okay? I, I got custody of my kids. I was one of the lucky ones. I fought a lengthy, difficult, expensive, horrible battle, but it's, it's over and done with. But I think going forward, it's because these children are at great risk, both now and 10, 15, 20 years down the road based on what's happening to them. And if we don't care about that, then it's a sad commentary on, on where we are. So as a journalist, how would you craft a narrative about, you, you referenced that you believe that this is child abuse. Um, what should the narrative, I mean, if people don't know, don't know that or recognize it by now, how should we be messaging it? What should the narrative be so people do take notice? Well, you know, I think the, when I was a, a journalist and, and when I was an entertainment guy, which I still sort of am, the, the key is to find people who are empathetic to your cause um, and not to try to force the door open where it's not going to be open. So if you think, wow, this is a really important story that CNN should be covering or the New York Times should be covering, that's not a good approach. You have to be able to find on the one hand, journalists at the news organizations, and I realize I'm showing my age by talking about the New York Times and CNN, but I am, I am what I am. But um, you have to find people at those organizations that are sympathetic, and, and it takes a lot of work to identify who they are. There are people who have written on these issues before. There are people who have, uh, who you can find out somehow have gone through difficult divorces or marriage, but and I found this certainly true in, in the movie and TV business. You, I, I had a friend who wrote a great screenplay about, I can't remember, some, some musician. And, she, and it was actually very good. And she was asking me for help on how to get it made. And I said, the only way you're going to get this made is if you can find an actress who wants to play that woman or a director who has a love of that particular composer. You can't just sort of blanket the media territory and say, this is an important story, pay attention to us. That will never, ever work. In fact, it'll have the opposite effect. It will have people say, please don't bother us again. <clears throat> but if you can look through the, the files of these news organizations and find reporters and producers and editors who have been sympathetic to this cause before um, and reach out to them and have a couple of stories in hand that are particularly compelling, you might find sympathetic ear that will say, okay, this is worth looking into at a, a deeper level. Um, you've got to find allies in the media. 
And that's true of anything. But I think people somehow assume that if you have a great story, you'll immediately find allies. And it's just not not true. You know, I was just wondering, Joe, throughout this whole process, um, do you, how are your kids affected under the age of 18 when it was going on? And when they were in their teen years after, thank God, this was all over for you in the courts and how they dealt with it as adults processing all these things. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, I think when they were going through it, as I say, my ex-wife abandoned my son. So that had a particular impact on him and sort of quasi kidnapped my daughter and alienated her against me. So it had a, a, a almost 180 degree different impact on her. Um, and, um, you know, they, their mom died. She died when, um, they were 17 and 14. So they were still teenagers when she died. Um, I think it had a profound impact on my daughter, especially, I think my son, to be honest with you, was relieved because this woman who had, you know, the role of his mother was never a mother to him, but I think my daughter was much more conflicted. Um, they both are married now. My daughter has three kids. Uh, my son and his wife just moved to Portugal. They seem to be happy. Um, but I think that the impact is, is very consequential. I think when it happens to kids at a young age, it's very difficult to get them. If they're attached to one parent, it's very difficult to get them to recognize the value of the other parent, unless you have a judge who has some courage and says, we're going to enforce this, we're going to take the alienated child away from the alienating parent, or we're going to make sure that there's a visitation schedule in place that's enforceable. But unless you have contact with both parents, it's impossible to make the children recognize the value of the parent who they're not attached to. So it takes, and that's not a legislative, you can't legislate that. You can pass a law that says there has to be this kind of visitation, but as I found in my case, and I'm sure many people find, it's really easy to circumvent those things. It's the easiest thing in the world to get around court orders. So you have to have somebody who's willing to say, I'm going to, as, as my the judge in my case said, my daughter would be doomed if she stayed with her mom. And they took her out of, uh, out of her mom's home. <clears throat> but the, the impact, Julie, is ongoing and long-lasting. And I think even if you are a good parent, which I thought I was and think I was, um, you know, there's going to be scars that that are there for the long haul, no matter what you do. Yeah, this is, um, you know, it's interesting. This was a big legislative week last week. Um, different legislatures all over the country are um, have some kind of bill uh, pending or going to the Senate appropriations or in some process uh, in dealing with these child custody issues. And I often wonder, um, and I'd love to know your take on it. You obviously had a judge that understood the magnitude of the impact you not having access on your child uh, would play on the child's best interests. Um, but unfortunately, there are many people who have um, 
similar situations to you, spanning multiple states and going on for years and years and years in the court system and don't get the same result as you had. Um, There's no magic bullet here, but I'd like you, maybe if you can shed some light on the things that can go wrong in the court system before a judge, uh, where people would have a different result than you had in your family. Yeah, um, that's a fair question. I mean, I think that in a bizarre way, I benefited, if that's the right word, from how off the rails my ex-wife was and the fact that she was willing to make multiple false allegations ultimately helped me. But uh, although it certainly didn't feel that way at the time, um, you know, I think, you know, at, at the end of the day, if, if you, first of all, I recommend that people try to resolve these things before they go to trial, obviously. First of all, it's expensive to go to trial and it's not usually very satisfying to do it. But once you go to trial, you're at the mercy of the judge. And um, some judges get it and some don't. Some are pro-mother, some are pro-father, some don't give a a damn about the case. So I think the biggest thing that can go wrong in the court system, if you get to the trial stage, is that you have a judge who is simply a wild card. And it's difficult to predict that we had a good judge. You know, I think the other thing that went wildly wrong in my case, for which I am forever angry, is that the the mental health professionals, quote unquote, were horrible. I mean, horrible. Um, The head of mediation in Ventura County all but said at the beginning of the first mediation, all but said, you're you're a child abuser. I'm pro mother. And I'm going to award the kids to the to the mother, and she ultimately, I mean, she couldn't award them, but she could recommend it. She ultimately recommended both of my kids go to their mom, and my son said, "I'm not going with my mom." He was 10 years old at the time, but the mental yeah. health. I, I I think I think the lawyers that I had were much better than the mental health professionals that I had, and I think you know you you guys can tell me, but the mental health professionals. And this is Ventura County, California. This is not, you know, some backwater. We're, we're terrible. They were not well-trained. They, they had very little idea of family dynamics. And I think that judges can go wrong and mental health professionals can go wildly wrong in these cases. You know, it's, it's so on point with uh, something I was listening to the other day. Um, there was a podcast with Dr. Drew Pinsky, um, the internist in California right. and the addiction specialist. And he's also a very big legislative advocate. And I didn't know this, um, but he actually did the commentary on a film called Divorce Corp, C-O-R-P. Um, And one of the things that he said, which really resonates uh, with me, is he said that if you can settle it, just like you said, Joe, in mediation, that would be the way to go if you can't save a relationship or a marriage or it is toxic to the kids. Um, But he also said that the second that you set foot in the court, you are giving up your constitutional rights. And 
I found that very interesting because so many people in the community who are, I guess what they refer to as targeted parents, um, and the kids are targeted, obviously, and don't know it, um, these people end up um, questioning themselves, having to go through years and years and years of litigation. And unfortunately, in many cases, their constitutional rights are violated, both as a parent, as a fit parent, as a legal guardian of a child. And I found it so interesting that uh, Dr. Dupinski had pointed this out, even though it didn't directly happen to him. His observation of the court system screamed for court reform, and he was giving a really, really definitive, uh, strong warning to the public to say, get out before you get in. And this is the climate that we're dealing with in this country. I believe that movie was made in 2014. And so I just wonder going forward while people are going through all of this horror, the children, the parents, grandparents, extended family, what advice would you give to the listeners about exercising self-care and how you did it while you are going through the six-year process of being entrenched in the family court? Well, I mean, I, I, I have somewhat, I, I'm going to veer from the question a little bit, but I will answer it. Um, uh, never lose sight of the fact that this is about the kids. Um, I met with a guy very early in my, in my divorce um, who said, <laughs> Never, never allow yourself to get angry. Uh, and he said that for two reasons. One, it's not healthy. And two, mothers are allowed to get angry. Fathers are not allowed to get angry. Um, and I never got angry. Um, and I never took my eyes off the, the eyes off the prize, which was the kid's well-being. Um, and I think if you do that, it's not, it's not going to make it easier, but it's going to, you know, focus your attention where it needs to be. I never, I, I, I wasn't able to work uh, on any kind of a continuing basis during the, the custody battle. I was in court 40 times in three states in five years. Um, but I never once regretted my dedication to trying to get custody of my kids. Never once, never once worried about what I was giving up and I gave up a lot. Um, as for my own self-care, I mean, I've always, you know, I'm in pretty good shape for an old guy. I was in pretty good shape for a younger guy then. I, I stayed, you know, I, I would hike in the California hills a lot. Um, people say you should talk to friends and family. I didn't find talking to friends and family all that helpful, to be honest with you. I think people who are not going through this or have not gone through it mean well. But it was like I was speaking Greek and they were speaking Hindi. And um, it was just not not a great connection. Um, you know, they tried to help, but they, they, you know, people would say, well, throw yourself into your work or, you know, try to move on with your life. And I, I felt like saying, do you have any, are you listening to me at all? Do you have any idea what you're talking about? Throw myself into my work, try to get past it. I want to, I, I, I adore my kids and I don't want them out of my life. <clears throat> so I think, you know, the self-care is just to recognize that you're doing 
what you believe in. I'm, I'm not a religious guy, but <laughs> there's a great Bruce Springsteen song called Brilliant Disguise. And the last line is, God have mercy on the man who doubts what he's sure of. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're sure of it, just keep fighting the fight and don't get angry. Keep fighting the fight and hope that at some point, some some uh, configuration of professionals will know that that you're, you know, you're the better parent. While you were going through this, Joe, um, did you write any publications about your experience um, to educate the public and also as a cathartic experience for you being that you were in journalism and TV and production? While I was going through it, I did not. I mean, I kept notes, but I didn't write anything because I figured that would not help my case. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think I was right. Um, uh, after I got custody of them, I wrote a piece for Parents Magazine about it. Um, and I've toyed with the idea of writing a screenplay about it. But while it was going on for that six, seven year period, <clears throat> I didn't write anything public because I, you know, it would be seen as self-serving. It would be seen as trying to put my thumb on the scale. And I just wanted to be as above board as, as humanly possible. That is ask. wise advice. You know, many people that are in advocacy, they're afraid to jump on the bandwagon with so many advocacy organizations and put them out there, themselves out there in public for the very same reason that you you spoke about. Uh, I'm sorry, Clint. You had. I'm sorry to. No problem. No problem. Uh, I was just going to ask this because you're 35 years in the film industry and everything, and a journalist. We've all seen Mrs. Doubtfire, War of the Roses, <laughs> Kramer versus Kramer. Yep. In your opinion, does Hollywood kind of either glorify divorce and custody battles, or horrifies them? That's a good question. But doesn't, um, but doesn't actually state what actually the experience truly is. Um, I actually like Mrs. Doubtfire. I, thought, I mean, it was preposterous. It was a ridiculous concept, but I, I thought it handled the relationship with the kids and the, the parents well. Um, um, Kramer versus Kramer still holds up well. It's a pretty good movie. Um, Marriage Story was awful. Um, I think that you know, it's tough to make a Hollywood picture um, that's taking too much of one side or the other. So I think that they try to walk that line. Um, but I give a lot of credit to uh, Robert Benton, who wrote Kramer versus Kramer, and got that made in the early 1980s. That was a, a tough time to get that kind of a movie made. Um, sure. But I think that you know, I think generally speaking, Hollywood does what it does best, which is doesn't take a side, doesn't try to get its hands dirty at all. So they put a movie out there. If they get a star to attach, or they have a big name attached, they'll tell the story, cross their fingers, hope for the best. But they're not they're not um, promoting an agenda, particularly. Mm -hmm. You know, there is another movie, Joe, that is really widely received, and it seems like every time I turn on uh, certain cable stations, it's it's like on a loop. It's always on. And that is the movie Enough with Jennifer Lopez. And mm. there's a lot of crossover issues. Uh, have you seen that movie? I have not. 
Okay. And it sheds light on child custody and, um, uh, you know, a mom was who was in an abusive relationship, really, really abusive. They show the abuse um, in the, throughout the movie. And um, she had to go in hiding with the child. Um, and uh, it ended very, very badly uh, for one of the parents. But it talked about, there was a scene in there talking about the breakdown, uh, what would happen if you would go into the court at that time. And I believe that movie now must be about 20 years old. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, it was very well received. And I'm just, I, I think, you know, we're about due for another movie. Uh, if you want to jump on the bandwagon, Joe. Uh, yeah, and, I would love uh, to. I'm, 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 I'm what you call in the, in the movie business old. So I'm not sure anybody's going to pay attention to me, but it certainly is something I'd love to do. Well, hopefully we could uh, uh, hook up with a lot of collaborators that I know are chomping at the bit to put something together in, in on this topic. No, I mean it's it's a hugely important topic, and I think that you know you don't want to you don't want to preach and you don't want to be one sided. But I just want you know I, I want to see some stories that portray real people in real situations. That's all I ask for. Oh, I'll, t I'll tell you, I'll tell you a movie that was actually not on this topic, but I don't know if you ever saw a movie called The Descendants with George Clooney. Um, yes. That was very good. It wasn't really the same thing, but his wife had an affair, but she got, was injured in a boating accident. She's in a coma and he winds up being a single parent. And I thought they did a very good job of handling streaming, but, but it's, it's not, documentaries just never have a big audience. I think if you look at the most successful documentaries like Bowling for Columbine or something like that, they made, you know, a few million dollars um, or, um, now I can't remember the the one the climate one that Al Gore was involved with. <clears throat> so oh, yeah. uh, an an unsuccessful feature film can make forty million dollars. A successful documentary can make ten million dollars. There's just not an audience for them. So uh -huh. even it doesn't matter what the subject matter is, right? Uh, it's just that's the way it is. Pretty much. I mean, there's some subjects. You know, Bowling for Columbine got attention because it was about um the uh the columbine shooting but but even that didn't do that well what media do you suggest um in terms of um uh getting the word out on these issues would be most effective because now we live in an age where you know these kids uh targeted alienated kids kids that don't have access to a parent they're on game systems and there are commercials on game systems and there's TikTok and there's Instagram and there's Facebook and there's Twitter and there's all of these different forms of communicating uh to get the word out to parents grandparents kids about yeah. these issues what do you think is most effective in this day and age well I'm a big believer in in social media so I think if you can get stuff on social media, that's great. But there was uh, this guy named Jeff Katzenberg, who was partners with uh, Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. And he tried to create uh, a whole company to do short form, like three minute vid programs, and it failed miserably. So I don't think the answer is short form. I think the answer, I think the best medium is to create a, a, a TV series that's successful about this subject matter an ongoing TV series that has <clears throat> relatable repeating characters that you see week after week 
who are dealing with these issues and then get that get that content morphed onto TikTok and Facebook and Instagram. Um, but I think television series, the series format is still the most widely watched one. I mean, series TV has essentially killed the independent film business, um, which, is, which is bad. But the good news is series TV is a thriving business. So if you want to put me together with some good TV people, I'm happy to help create that series. Well, I'll tell you, I'll be at Aspen this month, so uh, I will be meeting with some people if I come across some that I feel that can um, connect and will connect. I certainly, you'll be the first one I reach out to, Joe. I appreciate it. You know, it's such a different spin when we speak to people from so many different disciplines uh, in addressing these issues. Uh, I it really sheds light on the fact that every stakeholder, whether you're a parent, journalist, lawyer, doctor, finance person, um, this affects everybody and it affects families. And I can't imagine anybody that would not want to see a movie with rich, deep characters that affects families. It's an omnipresent issue. Um, unfortunately, not much has changed in terms of uh, people as a whole feeling that uh, there needs to be some kind of reform uh, in this arena. And it's just, um, you know, coming at it from an angle of a journalist. I would just like to know if you feel that just even in the newspapers, in the magazines right now, people I know read newspapers online. Do you think that there is a place for this in a weekly column somewhere that could shed light on this? Do you think that would play well? Definitely. Um, I think it would play well. I think the hard part is convincing an editor that it is worth his or her time and trouble and space. I mean, newspapers, you know, I love newspapers, but they're not a healthy industry, um, even online. Um, but there's lots of news outlets, and I definitely think that a column on this subject, well told and calmly told, could have a significant audience. Um, yeah, I, de I definitely agree with that. Yeah, you know, now everything is so money driven that even if I want to go into, let's say, the New York Law Journal um, or the New York Times, and they have different sections. Like they'll have something in the law journal on family law daily, and then you can't get in unless you pay certain fees or certain subscription fees. So right. I would love to see some kind of a non-for-profit come in and give people who need this information and want to see it daily have some side of way to be able to be a subscriber without it being so money driven. And I think that probably will give people the impetus to, um, you know, write more about it and be more engaged. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. Do you? No, I mean, I, I think there's newsletters and things like that out there about this subject matter. Um, and there's some Canadian based magazine, online magazine, the divorce something or other. Um, but um, I don't think you need a daily dose of this. I think that's too much. Um, but I think a weekly column 
about this is definitely worthwhile and, and, and is doable. As I say, you have to convince somebody that it's uh, that there's an audience for it and that they should give up existing space for this. And I think you can do that. I think that both of those are are arguments that can be made. Clint, do you have any other um, journalistic um, spin on this? Not really. I mean, Joe's pretty much covered all the aspects that we were looking for. Um, and we talk about, you know, in previous episodes and amongst ourselves, because we are running out on time here. Yeah. Uh, Joe, one way we I like to close the show is in your professional and personal opinion, do you feel parental alienation is child abuse? Absolutely. No question about it. That's okay. the easiest. That's the easiest question of, of the of the hour. You're, you're the second person in, in, in the two weeks that we've done episodes that has given us the one answer, the one word answer, and it, it pretty much says it all. Yeah. You know, uh, whether you're talking the mental aspect, the physical aspect, the emotional aspect, you know, it is abuse and, and you call a spade a spade, basically. Sure. Julie, do you have anything? The only thing that I would have to say is thanking Joe tremendously from giving his personal and professional um, take on uh, this critical criti critical issue joe one of the things i uh, people don't get is that time is the one thing you don't get back so you giving us your time <laughs> for this podcast is appreciated in more ways than we can ever explain it and our thanks is in more ways than you can ever we can ever give you and with that we're going to end this episode and folks listen in next week where we have another amazing episode and another amazing guest CF Digital is rooted in the contemporary family magazine mission to preserve family ties, whether parents are estranged, children are alienated, or otherwise impacted by their societal trauma. In each episode of CF Digital, we deliver a candid, down-to-earth, and supportive interviewing style that is both educational and enjoyable. In this way, you will more easily learn the history and vital skills necessary for you to become more effective practitioners, child advocates, and parents.